Welcome to the podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, the podcast that examines contemporary issues through the lens of history. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, here are your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Welcome, boys and girls, to Season 3 of History, Politics, and Beer. It's hard to believe that when Jeff and I sat down um, two years ago in February that we would be looking at over 40 podcasts and entering our third season. But here we are, Jeff, uh, sitting down. It's in summer. You guys out there, are. this is probably September, October when we'll actually release this pod. We're sitting down here in August, yep. getting ready to start Season 3. What are your thoughts? You think we'd get this far? No, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, no, I didn't, I didn't think, I thought we just did it because we like to do it. Right. You and I like to drink beer and we like to talk about history and politics and it was your idea. And, you know, it's, I just thought that's a win-win, isn't it? <laughs> drink beer and talk about history. I mean, that's a win-win no matter what, but I didn't expect, I mean, I think we got, you know, I, we don't know how many listeners we right. have on a regular basis. We're but, over 8,000 downloads. Yeah, 8,000 downloads. And, and, you know, when I taught school, those people had to be there. And, you know, I tried to be entertaining, but they had to be there. Right. And, you know, these people are doing this voluntarily, which is, you know, that's, I like that. That's, that's something. Uh, yeah. yeah. I like, you know, it's a little flattering to us, but I, I like the interest that's out there in, in more in-depth analysis of history and politics. There's an interest there. There is. I think uh, certainly in this political time when we are uh, so many memes and one-liners and quick little video clips are what social media and what drives a news cycle. Just to get a little bit more detail in depth to understand some of the issues, I think I think people appreciate that. Yeah, you know what what the news media and and, and what all your feeds on Twitter and Facebook what what people are doing is try to drive a, a narrative now. Whatever they, yeah. you know, that, there's a narrative. That's a whole podcast we should do on driving well, a narrative. Yeah, that well, that's what it's about. Right. And then and people get really irritated with you if you disagree with their narrative. But politics and history are complex. You know, like we didn't make it that way. As life made it that way. And most, I think, actually, if you sit down and talk to most people in depth. Their their viewpoints are more complicated than they might even let on, and I think that's what we're trying to get at. And we're trying, you know, I mean, in in a way, it's it's hard to do that. <laughs> You're, you know, the, those people driving narrative that's like a that's like a hurricane force wind that right. sweeps across our politics all the time, but it doesn't do us any good. No, it doesn't. It doesn't do us any good. No, you need to know things a little bit more in depth, and that's where hopefully we come in. So, hey, we're sitting down here. Even though you're listening to us in the fall, we are in the heat of August. So, Jeff, talk about the summer beer you brought with us. Well, I bought the Corona Extra. I don't think we have drank uh, Coronas during our – and, of course, I think most people are going to know uh, what that uh, beer is. And uh, I read a little bit about it. It's, it's made by Grupo Modelo. And so they make the Modelo Especial, which has has also really, really increased market share. Um, there, that's the beer where you know they say in their advertisements it's brewed for those with a fighting spirit. We don't care where you came from. I think it's a brilliant advertising oh, yeah. campaign. Not only in a sense that kind of uh, you know shows some Hispanic or Mexican uh, immigrants to the United States or background in a really good light. Um, I, I just think it's it's increased market share a lot, 
And I, I do, if you think about Modelo, you know, the same people brew uh, Modelo Special, brew Corona Extra. Then you think about how good that advertising campaign, and wasn't it really the advertising for Corona that got people interested in it? Yeah, find your beach. Yeah, and you, and, and, and you had like a, a straw hut. Right. And palm trees and the crystal, you know, the, the Mexican beach with the water. And then somebody in, a, you know, a, a beach chair, lawn chair, you know, putting a lime and a beer and drinking it. And, and it, it really, really caught on. And uh, so I, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> they popularized the idea of putting a piece of fruit in your beer. <laughs> yeah, I never, you know, when I was growing up in Indiana, we didn't put fruit in our beer. That's you for put, sure. They put beer, uh, fruit in your Budweiser. No. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's, it, it, the, the, it worked like crazy. Corona Extra is now the fifth most popular beer in the world. In the world. That's, that's something. I mean, they, that's a, it's been a tremendous success story. And it's good. I mean, it is good. It, it is good. I. It is one of those. It's a very light beer. The the. It is a great combination. That lime and the beer gives it such a great flavor. Yeah, um, and goes, I, I like the, uh, the the Corona as a lager. Yeah, and the Modelo Special is a pilsner. And actually, I like the 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 lime taste in the lager better. I do like it in the Corona uh, better. Uh, now, some the Corona comes in clear mm-hmm. bottles, and so sometimes. It gets skunked because ultraviolet light will uh, disintegrate the hop oils, and, and it's a beer that that has you know got kind of a bad rap because you leave it out, it will get skunked, and then you had rumors about all oh, of that's Mexicans pissing in the beer, <laughs> and you know. Uh, that's obviously not true. If you want to enjoy your Corona, just keep it in the in the you know the case the, and keep it out of the light. Keep it out, out of the light. sunlight. And uh, I like it. Well, let's let's have a zip. All right, here we go. All right, we've. Truth be told, we've already drank almost three-fourths of this beer. Yeah, we're, we're, we're so, going to start another one real soon. <laughs> Let's we're, pretend we're we, trying it. We like Corona. <laughs> we do. It is good beer. It is with that little lime. And that it's, lime is just so good. It just it, Yeah, that, I, I'm sure that we're preaching to the choir here. Almost everyone out there, I'm sure, has had a Corona beer. And um, in the summertime, uh, it, it's, it's, it is the perfect beer. I, I, I will say that in the summer, I don't know if I would have, I have a better go-to beer than Corona. No, me either. It's been yeah. hot lately and I mow the lawn and I drink Coronas. Yeah. All right. So there we go. Um, speaking about the sun destroying something, um, I'm telling you what, this is, uh, <laughs> leading into our topic today. Um, the declaration of independence, uh, that's what we're going to talk about. You can go see. The Declaration of Independence down at the National Archives. Um, it is on display. If you've never actually seen it, uh, you can really just uh, save your time and energy because there's really nothing to see. To the average, to the naked eye, the Declaration of Independence is practically blank. Um, it's also behind protective glass that gives it a slight greenish hue that's also going to sort of distort your view. And the reason why that parchment is almost completely blank is because of sunlight. Um, the original copy was hung in um, uh, the patent office, I believe, right across from a window, and no one realized what the damage the sun can do. So the original Declaration of Independence, actually, it's not the original, the one that's, we'll talk about that, but that Declaration of Independence, go see, is almost blank. Have you ever, have you been to National Archives? And, and, you know, you do see – you can make out the John Hancock a right. little bit, but it, and it's in really stark contrast to the Constitution. Whatever ink and parchment was used and however that was treated is – you know, because the Declaration is only, what, 
13 years older than the Constitution. Right. But you can you can read the Constitution. But the Declaration, <laughs> you're not reading that. Well, know? I also think that at the time period, too, they understood the Declaration – I mean the Constitution to be more important than the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence took – and we'll talk about this, too. It took some time for it to gain what it is today. Um how important it is. And obviously from the very beginning, the Constitution being the the founding document of our nation, uh, we could talk about the Articles of Confederation, but obviously I think to the people at the time, that was going to be the more lasting of the two documents. All right, so let's back up a little bit and we're going to give you a brief history lesson. And real quick, I don't want this to turn into a timeline of history because that will just get boring. But we need to go back to 1763 uh, to the end of the French-Indian War. Uh, in 1763, no man sane or sober would have been talking about freedom or independence from Great Britain. We were very happy being colonists. We were one of the most li- part of the most liberal governments in the world. Uh, people could vote. People had rights. The, the right of an Englishman was protected. It followed the flag, um, and we were very happy being uh, part of a colony. Now, people may have spoke about independence in the future at some point, but certainly that was a theoretical discussion after the war of um, the French Indian War. Debt isn't is accrued by England, and they need to tax, and they start taxing the colonies. And this is what we're going to get, no taxation without representation. And the English in the colonies felt that their rights were being violated. As as Englishmen. Right. Englishmen, they they had a parliament. Uh, English people could vote by uh, the time of the revolution. You had a House of Lords and a House of Commons. The House of Lords was hereditary. A House of Commons, people could vote, and and that was the idea. You could, you know, it was you could vote for your leaders, and they would go in there and make a law. It it was a still a monarchy where the king had a lot of power, but the king did not have ultimate power at the time of the revolution. Parliament held the the uh, ultimate lawmaking power. Right. So this is going to break down to a war of principle. On the colonist side, they were paying much less taxes than they were in England. Um, it was reasonable for them to pay taxes for the support of the empire and for the defense of the empire. And, and also for access to trade. Yeah. And, and considering that the French-Indian War started in the colonies in the Ohio River Valley, it also made sense that they would pay part of that. Um, so, but they could not vote in the parliament, so they felt taxation without representation. On the other side of the ocean, it's also a principled stand um, because England felt that they had a right to tax the colonies, and they didn't want to back down from that principle. So even when uh, England does back down from taxing, they had a general way of throwing in something that kind of said, well, we're not taxing you, but – we're going to rescind this tax, but we have the right to tax you. We have the right to do this. Do not read into us rescinding a tax. Um, so there's this sort of nip back and forth at each other. And eventually, um, in the mid-1700s, as King of England would say, it would come to blows or have to be decided by blows where both sides decide the only way to resolve this issue is through a conflict of arms, which brings us to the Declaration of Independence and the slow process the colonies go through to actually decide 
that they even want to declare independence because fighting actually is beginning in 1775 with Lexington and Concord, but we don't declare independence to 1776. More than a year later. That's sort of an odd thing. And I don't think the average American probably really knows that, that the colonists were in one hand fighting a war and on the other hand trying to negotiate with the mother country to have a, a solution to the armed conflict, which the mother country had wanted nothing to do. Hey, you need to pass me that uh, bottle opener. I need to have, open my second bottle of Corona. All right. Well, yeah, and and and, and that's right. And um, you know what what had happened is uh, militias had organized. You had the Boston Tea Party. The uh, you know Britain asserted the right to uh, blockade. And in the trade in, in, in any harbor, but they did in Boston. Boston was suffering, and uh, Massachusetts really became the center of radicalization. And they marched out Lexington Concord and tried to take the arms uh, of the militias. They were meant, and 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 the war started. But like you said, we're still trying to be port of England, still maintain that. Uh, and the colonies. In fact, there were people who had proposed something a little bit like the. What is now the British Commonwealth before uh, the Declaration of Independence, which is the idea is we'll we'll have allegiance to the crown, but we're going to make our own laws, which is of course what Canada and Australia and these other places in the British. But uh, that was a no go. And Thomas Paine uh, published Common Sense in the January 1776, and that was a radical call to arms. Uh, it radicalized uh, some Americans. Uh, and so by the time, the summer of 1776, you had people who, who wanted the United, who wanted the colonies to form their own nation and become independent. Right. So we, we are slowly brought to that um, prepices, not prepices, what we're, what we're, Precipice. Thank you very much. Uh, we're slowly brought there. And sometimes historians will call us reluctant revolutionaries, that the fighting starts in 1775. Uh, we're trying to get reconciliation. It doesn't work. And eventually by 1776, a majority of the delegates in Philadelphia at the Second Continental Congress, because the first one didn't work, the first one sent the Olive Branch petition to England, hoping to reconcile this. That didn't work. They didn't really didn't anticipate or hoping not to have a Second uh, Continental Congress, but they did. And it is at this that they finally come to a conclusion, slowly, um, that independence is going to be necessary. So in June of 1776, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia um, makes a motion that the colonies should be free from Great Britain, um, and they want to take a vote. The problem with it in June of 1776 is that most of the state delegates didn't really have permission from their home states to go that far. So they had to adjourn to allow these delegates to go back to their home states to talk about the issue. In the meantime, uh, they were going to reconvene in early July 1776. In the meantime, a committee of five is put together. Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Robert Livingston of New York, Franklin of Pennsylvania, Adams of Massachusetts, and Jefferson of Virginia are put together with instructions from the, from the Continental Congress to write a declaration of independence. Um, 
it really comes down to Jefferson. Uh, Sherman and Livingston didn't have a lot of writing experience. Uh, Franklin was ill. And Adams famously says to uh, Jefferson, you know, people like you, they don't like me. Uh, you're from Virginia. I'm from Massachusetts. A person, a man from Virginia should be at the center of this. And most important, you're a much better writer than I am. Yeah. Adam said uh, he, he didn't want to write it also because I am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular, <laughs> which, uh, you know, <laughs> that's uh, definitely he didn't. And, you know, Franklin, I, Franklin was older uh, at this time. Uh, he was probably the most read author in the whole uh, co- uh, in the colonies because of poor Richard Almanac. Uh, but uh, he also had a policy. He didn't want to write anything that would be subject to other people's revisions. And this, of course, was going to be revised. So Jefferson gets the task. And we need you want to talk a little bit about Jefferson? Well, I w- the thing I want to say about Jefferson is that Jefferson is going to sit down and write this. Uh, within two weeks. This is not necessarily original work. This is borrowed, copy and paste. I know you're going to get into a little bit more of that um, from other sources. And this is okay. Um, today, this we talk about plagiarism. In the 1700s, that was not the case. People regularly borrowed from other sources openly. And this is what Jefferson is doing. And also remember that Jefferson isn't championing a new idea here. This is not something that's going – this is not a radical thing. He's trying to popularize the idea that is fermented in the Continental Congress. He is justifying a revolution. That's really what the Declaration of Independence originally was about. It was a justification to go to war, not only to be read by the colonists, but also to be read by other countries. And that's correct. And, you know, Jefferson, uh, I think people are generally familiar with him. He's probably the most brilliant public servant that that the United States has ever produced. Uh, you know, his dad was wealthy. As a member of the landed gentry, he received a, a really good education, especially for that time. I think he began his education at five uh, later, he studied Latin and Greek, mathematics and science, and as an adult, he could speak English, French, Italian, and Latin, and he could read Greek and Spanish. So by my count, that's six languages, and that's five more than I <laughs> And uh, probably many more than any other president, but I don't know. I'll have to investigate that. But My only guess is maybe Teddy Roosevelt might yeah. have but he doesn't I don't think he has six six is a lot and uh, you know what he did he went at 16 he went to the college of William and Mary and he studied the British empiricist uh, and, and they included Isaac Newton and John Locke and these are towering figures of the British enlightenment and we talked about the European enlightenment and he became kind of steeped in 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 their uh, way of looking at the world enlightenment's also called the age of reason. And uh, it's it's these ideas that he incorporates into the Declaration. Um, the heart of the Declaration is in the second paragraph. Do you have any more to add before about getting it written and ratified before? Well, we go on? the one thing I, I wanted to say is that when he, he brought the um, the when he brought it, when he wrote it, brought it back. Uh, Franklin and Adams are going to offer sixteen edits to it, um, and you know they do have a copy of the. Um, I just read this. They they have a copy of Jefferson's original uh, manuscript with the um, notations and crosses out by Franklin 
and and Adams, I think Franklin did a few more. I always think like you know Thomas Jefferson handed me something. Yeah. What would I be crossing out? But you know that it shows you what kind of founders we had. This was Adams was a classically educated guy. Yes. Franklin was one of the most famous scientists of the whole period, which I didn't know because of his experience experiments with electricity. That was in Walter. I found that out in Walter Isaacson's biography of, of Ben Franklin. So I was like, you got three guys who, you know, might have genius IQs doing this. Right. It's, it's, it's crazy to think They're about not intimidated that. by one another no, either. No, no. Uh, the Committee of Five will make 31 changes, and then Congress itself will make 39 edits as well. So that's putting you up around, what, 66, 67 total edits. Nothing – really drastic some uh, a few paragraphs were removed uh but most of it was just f- toning down the declaration a little bit jefferson really went after the king and it was toned down just a bit i you know maybe a little a little naive there to think that king george is going to be reading that and go well that that's okay. You know, you know I mean? that's, that, that's a reasonable uh, assessment of my <laughs> – so, but anyway, it, it really does show that this was taken very seriously. Um, and as you said, it is – we do have the original. Matter of fact, the original even has uh, Jefferson actually even cut out a piece of parchment and wrote on it and pasted it over the original parchment, uh, literally cutting and pasting into the original document uh, to get what it was. Yeah, no no – uh uh, computers. Back God, could you down. imagine Jefferson with a computer? Uh, yeah, maybe it even sounds smarter. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but how, you know, think about that quill pen and mistakes, how to be edited, how prolific he could have been yeah. with his writing. But uh, anyhow, this is presented to Congress. And you want to tell that story? Because I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, Adams didn't think we were going to celebrate uh, July 4th. He thought we were going to celebrate July 2nd. Why is that? Well, because the vote took place on July 2nd. so To approve the declaration. declaration. So let's move back a little bit. No, actually not to approve the declaration. It was Richard Henry Lee's motion. So when they come back to Philadelphia July 1st, 1776, uh, now all the states, all the delegates have gone back, talked to – their home states, and now they know how to proceed. July 1st, uh, there is some consternation back and forth on uh, how are we going to vote? Are all the states going to vote? They adjourn, come back July 2nd. Uh, they vote for independence. It's a 12 nothing vote. Uh, New York abstains uh, to make it unanimous. Eventually, I think on July 9th, New York will eventually also approve, but I don't think they quite had permission from the home state yet. So, we, we are now independent. July 2nd should be the day, according to Adams. Adams writes, this is going to be the day. It's going to be remembered forever. There's going to be fireworks and blah, 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 blah. Um, but Jefferson, Adams didn't know how important the Declaration of Independence was going to be. The original declaration uh, was sent to John Dunlap. Uh, a local printer in Philadelphia, and you may have heard of something called Dunlap's Broadsides. Uh, Dunlap printed up 150 of these original um, declarations. And, and, they, and Broadside was just a single-page newspaper, basically. Right. Yeah. yeah, and they were sent out all over the colonies. No one knows what happened to the original. The original Declaration of Independence is lost to history, the original one that was set to John Dunlap. Um, an official one was then uh, ordered by the Continental Congress to be put on parchment so all the delegates could sign it. But that didn't really happen until 
uh, later in July, early August that all of them are going to sign. So July 4th is when they approve the Declaration of Independence. That's when Congress votes it. That's when Congress votes it. And the next year, on July 4th, 1777, Philadelphia celebrates the first Independence Day. Uh, Congress is adjourned. They have fireworks. They have bonfires. And that is where the beginning of our July 4th celebration and and you know so now Americans know what they're fighting for, and this is a, a very strange thing about the United States. It's not like uh, most other countries. Is is that a set of principles is put out there, and this is a, their government is about this, and then we fight a war, and then we create a constitution to make the government about that. It's a it's a very strange way to create a nation if we look at it historically. That's not the way they're created. But that's also, you know, to me, it's part of the glory of the United States. I think it's an amazing thing, even though we don't live up to those words in the in the Declaration. Oh no! And and to be truthful, they're extremely hard, if not impossible, to live up to. But it it's just the the planning to do that and having the people with the intellectual capacity. Uh, to do that and uh, and then to be successful at try you know to in their way of thinking about implementing these of course the united states is an ongoing project and and we still haven't lived up to the words in the declaration but the heart of the declaration is the second paragraph the first paragraph just says you know we're writing some here to tell you why we're we're leaving right uh and then uh probably one of the most famous uh lines in history is we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So w- when Jefferson wrote these words, he is channeling uh, these the Enlightenment thought of the time, especially a guy named John Locke in a second treatise on civil government. But if we just take a look at two concepts, let's apply it to just the, that uh, one very, very famous sentence. There's this idea of natural law that be, that the uh, actually uh, the Greeks talked about it, but gets developed through the Enlightenment. With Isaac Newton, because Isaac Newton is right. going to take uh, his uh, – on, on law, the, not the, the laws of gravity, and he is going to explain to us why the planets – are in orbit and why they're doing what they're doing. And he's shedding away basically what other people are saying about the church and that religion and God. He's like, no, 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 no. We're going to strip all that away and look at it very and be rational about this. Exactly. And these are the natural laws. The age of reason replaces the age of faith. So faith won't be revealed. Uh, Knowledge, the most important knowledge, will not come from the Bible anymore. It won't be written and then you'll read it and then... uh, um, it's certainly God is still important. That's where we have the concept of deism. What guys like Newton thought is uh, God still created the world, and, it, and he, he did it according to principles. And because he created a rational being, man, we could find those principles and, and discover them and use them to our benefit. Right. And, and there's natural laws that govern it, govern the flying the, the movement the of planets. Right. There should be natural laws also that we can apply to governing man on Earth. And again, to to see how that replaces religious thought in government, natural law is advanced as an alternative to divine right. Right. The king, is, you know, 
we all know that I think the an- uh, national anthem of Great Britain is God Save the King or Queen, depending on who's in office. And, and it cut the, the king and queen ruled by the grace of God. In fact, the pope would come for their coronation and put the crown on. And this natural law was like, no, no, no. You know, we can look around and we can come up with principles about government and we can come up with a better government by looking logically at uh, at uh, people's behavior and figure out a better government. And, and, and that's the idea. You know, John Locke did that. And he said in a second treatise that if we look at nature, mankind and the state of nature, we men are free. They're free to do whatever the heck they want to do. You know, nobody's stopping them. And uh, because of that, they're equal. They're not in a social system where, you know, you got people on top and people are bottom. He said the great thing that's bad about this is you're insecure. You, you know, somebody can knock you on the head and take away your stuff and take away your life. They can take away your liberty. Your liberty. And Locke put it, they could take away your property. They could steal things right. from you. So what we need is a way to to have laws. We need security. To, so people will make a government. And they'll make a government and they'll give judges authority and they'll have a police force that can enforce laws. And then you will be more secure. And the way Locke put it again is you're in your life, liberty, and property. This idea is called the social contract. And if we apply, look again to the next line in the second paragraph – uh, that ju- in the Declaration, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That's the social contract. That's why we're doing it, to secure our rights, because in a state of nature, you're not secure. Right. So we see the natural law being life liberating in pursuit of happiness, right? That's, if you want to go to Isaac Newton, that's sort of the natural law of man. Now we also have that God is mentioned in there, right? So Isaac Newton saw God as sort of a watchmaker, right? He the 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 universe was set and then wound by God and it just moved perfectly. And we have this that uh to secure these rights, governments are wait, blah blah blah. Oh, okay, endowed by their creator. So we have the idea that in a way God is winding the watch or creating the watch. He gave all man life, liberty, and the idea of pursuit of happiness, which you point out is really a protection of property in a way. Then where the natural law comes into play for how we can apply it to man and how we can use natural law is that governments are instituted among men to protect these God-given rights, right? Well, it's a, it's, well, it's a well, genius how it comes together. Right, and, it, and they don't use the word God because Jefferson's a deist. He used the word creator, and it, it, God is less interventionist. Right. You mentioned yes. that uh, Isaac Newton thought of this God as more of a watchmaker. He set this system up, and we can find out about it because he created a rational universe and rational men. So uh, – uh, we can confine and we can intervene. We can use this to our advantage. And you have, you know, the beginnings of the idea of uh, of science and and technological control and so forth. But an, another thing that Locke emphasizes is the legitimacy of government that comes to election. So in the second part of the sentence, it says deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Consent of the governed means legitimacy comes from elections. It doesn't come from divine right. It comes from the people. They have to elect you. So Parliament should, you know, in Locke's way of thinking when it was right, Parliament should have the right to make laws. 
not a hereditary king. And of course, that's something that Jefferson's going to agree on. Which also explains the first sentence of the Constitution, we the people. Right. So, and then the second paragraph again, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is a right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Locke's idea is the social contract. We come together voluntarily because our life, liberty, and property, in Jefferson's word, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, are threatened. We do it voluntarily. So we're going to give the government the power uh, to make laws and to enforce them through judges and police force and stuff. So we're not insecure. But we do it voluntarily. It's a contract. And we'll, we'll, we'll go along with the government as long as they protect those things. And when they don't, guess what the government did? They broke the contract, and we're not bound by it and anymore. And that's the next sentence, right? And that's where Jefferson says that if a government does these, if a government doesn't do its job— Alter or abolish it. We have a right to alter or abolish it. And and then he, then he uses those words because the next part of the declaration is something like 27 complaints about— England, which he focuses on the king, not the parliament. He says he does this right. and he does that. And basically, it, it's a lawyer's argument. Jefferson had practiced law, and uh, it's a lawyer's argument. There was a contract here. Guess who broke it? We didn't break it. You guys didn't. You didn't protect our lives. You didn't protect our property. And the way Jefferson's a philosopher, so happiness does, is, it doesn't just come from property. So he says, pursuit of you're not protecting those things. So guess what? Then the next part of the declaration says, we're independent. You broke it. Right. Look at all these dang things you did. So that that's the heart of the Declaration of Independence. And when this is originally published and read aloud, and historians do believe that Jefferson wrote this with the idea of not only being read, but it would have a flow to it to be read out loud. The average person was illiterate, and it was so people think that Jefferson had an, an ear for this. And when it was read out loud in New York, it started a riot. Uh, they tore down King George's statue and brought the head of it to George Washington. Um, so it hit a, it hits people very hard. It hit them passionately where it was read out loud. And eventually that uh, statue was going to be melted down and I think turned into 42,000 bullets or balls, uh, lead balls that were going to be used in oh, the revolution. Really? Yes. Okay. So um, the declaration is by uh, – is it the high watermark for Jefferson? I, I don't know if we can go much higher – than the Declaration of Independence for Thomas Jefferson to write something in 1776 and to have it stretch over the decades, the centuries as it has, even in the 21st century where people are still quoting it. Um, Ho-, Ho Chi Minh read it, right? you know, when Vietnam won its independence from the France. He read it over the radio, at least part of, I think, the second paragraph over <laughs> the radio. So the, this in, the influence of the Declaration has been Enormous. It's and been championed by the women's rights movement in 1848 um, in Seneca Falls when the women's rights movement um, wrote their declaration of rights. Basically, they used a declaration and just put female and, and made it the made it include their gender as well. It was used by the civil rights movement. It was re- used right. by Ho Chi Minh. It's been used repeatedly again and again and again because 
it, like I said, it has to be the high watermark for Jefferson. Well, I mean, and, and, and probably the greatest student of all of Jefferson is Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address goes right back to those concepts. He's, you know, it starts out, you know, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Of course, this is on the you know, commemoration of the greatest battle of the Civil War, which by that time had become a battle uh, to get rid of slavery and to, uh, uh, you know, a, a battle for human equality. And so, obviously, uh, it, you know, this has just had tremendous impact. And generally, you know, the way I think, for the good, the way I look at American history is is – that this was set down. This was written by a slaveholder, a person who had uh, children with one of his slaves, and they, he didn't see that as as, uh, as hypocritical. Oh, I don't know about that, Joe. You know, I don't. He doesn't write about that right. because he keeps it secret. He actually he did. I mean, he wrote enough about slavery that I think he did understand that it was hypocritical. I don't think he had the guts. Like, I always, you know, these great leaders. You know, Washington, in his will, uh, frees all his slaves, which was the, ser- the most secure way to ensure manumission or freedom for his slaves. So he frees them all. You know, Jefferson doesn't. <laughs> but but he, he, freezes, he frees some of the slaves that he had uh, that are children, you know, with, with Sally Hemings. But what I mean by hypocritical is that Jefferson would not have been – he might have said slavery was wrong, but he went and argued for their equality. He wouldn't argue that the black man should have the right to vote and that the black woman should have the right to vote. From my understanding, you may – like I'm curious to hear your opinion on that. No, that- I, yeah. I, I think he understood that that he was living in a paradox though. Right. That, that, I shouldn't own know. them, but they're not my equal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I don't think he would have thought mm-hmm. of, of black people as their equal. But he, I think he understood that the principles – well, he did understand. He understood that the principles that he wrote down he wasn't living by. Uh, but um, but yeah. Becomes this this to me the history of the United States is we have this these high ideals set down pretty much right afterwards it's qualified well by all men being created equal and having inalienable rights what we don't mean women uh, we don't mean black people certainly certainly not slaves and for many many states. We don't believe a white guy without property should have these right. either. So it, one way to look at the history of the United States is a struggle to look up, you know, to live up to these ideals. Like the first people to get uh, uh, more freedom uh, and get included in the social contract are white males without property. In most states, those the property provision is removed in order to get the franchise. So that's the first then actually, uh, you know, black people technically by the 15th Amendment get right. the right to vote. The 14th Amendment get equal rights, you know, supposedly equal protection under the law. And then in the 1920s, women get the franchise. So there's this constant expansion of civil rights. 
in our history. And and to me, it's these these groups. It's part of it is there's some white men who believe in these ideals and they fight for them. A lot of them are buried at Gettysburg. You can go by that time they they fought and died. It was a battle for emancipation, the Emancipation Proclamation. But part of it is also these groups saying, you know what, me too. I want some of that social contract. You said the government's going right. to protect what? Life, liberty, and my prison. How about me? It's not protecting my life. It's not protecting my liberty. It's not, I want some of that too. And through agitation then, women get the vote. You know, that's it's not equality, but it's a step. Through agitation, through the civil rights movement, you get the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. It's not equality, but it's a step in that direction. And now we have a, you know, from a country 200-some years ago when the Declaration was written and to where white men who owned property were the only ones being considered to be part of that contract. We do have a country where we've had a black president. You know, we, we have, uh, I, I think I just read 56% of the students in college now are women. And if we look around at other parts of the world, and, and this is something I'm, I'm, I'm very scared that the left might do to this country, by emphasizing the way the dec- people aren't equal and emphasizing patriarchy and, and racism, which are things that certainly have existed. I'm not going to argue that they, you know, they haven't existed throughout American history. But by making it just about the United States not living up to a utopia has it. But look around. Where is this even an ideal that women should have equal rights or that all people should have equal rights? What, in, in China? You know? Saudi Arabia, yeah, Iran, yeah. Iraq. Anywhere in the Middle Sub-Sahara East. Sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan. Where is it? You know, the, the place where people have the most freedom are, is the, you know, are, are countries that have been influenced by these ideas of the Enlightenment. And let me... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you talk about it. We just watched the Women's World Cup, and the team, all the teams that were competitive in it. I mean, where the U.S. where women have freedom, or where, where women, women are, have freedom, and yeah. they and they have they have more choices over their lives. A young woman who's athletic can say, oh, you know what, I'm going to be a really good athlete. And the society will say, okay, we'll I'm, support you. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have kids. Or not immediately. I'm, I'm going to put that off. Yeah. I'm going to do this first. Right. And and, and, and it's, it's obviously something that's been a traditionally masculine area, athletic mm-hmm. achievement. And and so the teams that are the best teams are the USA and then the Netherlands and Sweden and France and England and Germany, there's places where the Enlightenment ideals eventually, after a while, and through a lot of effort by the United States in some of those cases, triumphed. And so these people have more freedom. Now, it's, it's, it's neat in Japan, these young women have this opportunity too, which I think is neat because, but again, you know, the Japanese constitution was written after World War II right. and heavily influenced by American ideals. So what I'm worried about is attack, I'm worried about attacks on these ideals from the left because they don't acknowledge the progress. It's almost like you're always at square one. It's almost like you never, you know, half, it's almost like more than half of the, of, 
you know, Americans of Africa. The fire is never being put out. Yeah. The fire rages, you know, the fire, there's this fire of, if you think of a a fire, the house is on fire and that fire is inequality. And we've been throwing a hose on it now for over 200 years. And certainly the fire is still burning. Uh, There's still inequality. But it's not what it was. No. The fire, we're doing better. The fire is get is is starting to be put under control. Like you said, it's not out, but you're absolutely right. And you'll the, get flare-ups. But the the left is this idea that the fire is burning just as bright as it was a hundred years ago, and that's not an accurate portrayal of history. No, not at all. And and when you look around the world, they you know I remember when my daughter was born uh, nineteen years ago, I was just so thrilled. That she was born into this country because I honestly felt she could be, she could do anything. Even with you as her father, she could do anything. <laughs> <laughs> she could overcome that obstacle. But I honestly felt, well, she could do anything. She could be, you know, I, I, you know, we've taught for you and I for many years. We've taught kids who are, you know, I just said I had a kid I communicated with, and she shouldn't say a kid anymore. She's a young woman. She's graduated from the University of Virginia and taught her AP government. That's one of the top law schools in the whole country. She can do do anything. I have another. This is all a product, really, all a product of the Enlightenment. Well, and people and people saying me too. Right. You can't. Yes. The social contract. I am part of this contract. Martin Luther King even said, "I've I've come to cash a promissory note." Yeah. You made this promise. We're part of this promise, and this is what I think is genius about the Declaration. What we concentrate on today, this idea of the social contract, and we want to bring more people into the social contract, that wasn't the main focus of the Declaration that was written. The main focus was to justify the war. But as the war was justified, and as, when we won the war, the document becomes relevant because of the idea of the social contract. And as we open it up, more and more people want to be part of it. And the social and, contract is written into the Constitution. And this is sort of the, the longevity of the Declaration of Independence, that each generation gets to look at it and interpret it a little bit differently, expand the idea of all men are created equal, um, no one reads the grievances to the king anymore because no one cares. Like no one's quoting the grievances to the king. And if you read the declaration, the the vast majority of it is a list of grievances, right. right? So Jefferson's original intent. People aren't impressing our seamen off ships anymore. <laughs> no. The the original intent, of the declaration, has come and gone. Um, but it's a lasting document. Um, because of the principles that were stated early on in the document, which Jefferson, I don't think, thought really would be as long-lasting as they were. Well, he, he must have thought they were important. He wouldn't have stuck them in a second paragraph. So, but, but yeah, I, I don't know if he. I don't. I don't think he or any of the founding fathers could have known the the total impact of the right. of the Declaration. I also worry a little bit about the right wing. Right wing keeps because sometimes I think. They want to go back to the original contract, which is, no, it doesn't include uh, these other people. But anyhow, it's it's an amazing document. Um, Let's end with some trivia. Okay. All right. I'm going to give you a date. You tell me why this date is important. July 4th, 1826. Holy crap. 1826. July 4th, 1826. Oh, I think I know. Go ahead. 
Is that the date that both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson pass away 50 years after the Declaration is approved by Congress? Very good. The 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in one of those great coincidences of history, both Jefferson and Adams passed away. Uh, Jefferson passes away first. Obviously, Adams didn't know that. Adams was in Mass- uh, was in New England and Jefferson was in um uh, Virginia. Virginia, and supposedly Adams may have said, at least Jefferson survives. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that if you know the answer to this, God bless you, because I had to look this up. There, By 1826, there's only three people alive that signed the Declaration, uh, Adams and Jefferson being two, and they die in, in 1826. The last surviving signer of the Declaration died in 1832. At the age of 95, he is from Maryland. Any idea who that would be? I mean, this is tough. This is really obscure stuff. Charles Pickney. <laughs> That's a good guess. <laughs> Charles Carl. What? Didn't know. There you go. Charles Carl, uh, 95 years old in 1832. Well, I, I got one for you. All right. Who is the one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence from Lancaster, PA, where we make this oh, podcast? That's embarrassing. And I don't know it. George Ross. And we have a Ross Street where his oh. house was. I saw a picture of his house on the internet. Unfortunately, they have torn it down, so you can't go there. Anymore. So you didn't see a picture of his house on the internet? I did. It was a, an old picture that oh, somebody okay. had posted. Right. Yeah. It wasn't right. somebody who knew it. Yeah. <laughs> somebody wasn't going along with their, with their iPhone taking a picture. All right. Here's another question for you. In what order did they decide to sign the Declaration of Independence? So you went from... You know, it's 56 names on it. How did they decide the order and the, the order in which it was signed? I have no clue. It was done all by geography. It went from north to south. Really? So the most northern colony did first. The southern most southern colony was last. Okay. Um, I did not know. There are only two people who don't that are delegates to the Constitution and that don't sign the Declaration of Independence. One of them is from New York and he leaves early. His name is Robert Livington Livingston. Uh, he left early and never signed. The other one was there and felt that uh, it was going too far too fast. And he is from the great state of Pennsylvania and has a university named a college named after him here in central PA. Do you know that delegate? Dickinson? It is John Dickinson. Um, if you ever have a chance to watch uh, John Adams on HBO, uh, the the series, there are some great scenes with Adams and Dickinson arguing back and forth. And you really get a sense of how much John Dickinson really struggled with this idea of declaring independence. Yeah, I, You know, one thing about Lancaster, the uh, the oldest church in town is it was called the it was the Church of England, and then after the Revolution, it became the Anglican Church in America, or the Episcopal Church, because they didn't want to have the Church of England. But the minister left. The minister for the Church of England in uh, Lancaster left, and he went back to England, England. because wherever well, the Anglican Church was powerful, yeah. it was uh, they were loyal to loyalists there. Yeah. And I'm going to give you one last, and I'm just going to give you this one because there's no way you would know it. Um, from Pennsylvania, one of the signers was the first to die after signing the Declaration. He died in 1777 of tuberculosis, and that was John Morton. He was also oh, part of the delegation that wrote the Articles of Confederation. Anyway, boys and girls, hey, this was our 
uh, opening pod for our third season. Um, we love doing these things for you guys. If you want to get in contact with us, as always, history, politics, and beer at Gmail. Uh, you can catch us on Twitter. You can catch us on Facebook. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye.